though Israel had lost her way. Israel was the nation that God had chosen to bring his salvation to the world. But somehow they had gotten it wrong, so wrong in their determination to bring God's victory to the world. The only word left for them at this point was repent or perish. And when we pick up the story in Luke chapter 13, Jesus has been warning Israel in the sternest language possible. Repent or they would face the awful judgment of God. Look at Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 40. Here is Jesus traveling to the cross. He looks at Israel. And he says, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here is God, a roaring lion about to pounce on his prey. Here is God approaching like a terrible army at infinite speed. Notice verse 47, Luke chapter 12, verse 47. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. And verse 56, Jesus has even harsher words. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. You can tell if it's going to be a storm, if a storm is coming when you look at the clouds. Why do you not know how to interpret this moment in time? They knew how to interpret the signs of weather, but they were completely dense to what God was doing. So in verse 57, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that they are on their way to a judgment that brooks no turning back. The only way for Israel to escape the impending judgment is to come come to terms with their accuser who is among them in that moment to be reconciled to their accuser. What it says in verse 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, Jesus is saying, literally, you're walking with me. I am on my way to the magistrate. I am your accuser. Jesus is begging them, make every effort. What does it say? To be settled with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The accuser is in their midst. He's on his way to the judge to throw them in prison. The storm of God's wrath is building against Israel. And when the storm breaks, Jesus is saying to Israel, it will be utterly comprehensive judgment for you. It will be a national and a social and a cultural and a personal 
catastrophe. And while Jesus is in the middle of giving this terrible warning, look what happens in chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present. At that very time, right in the middle of Jesus pronouncing this warning, and they said to him, Jesus, have you heard the latest news? Some Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. So in response to Jesus' warning of the approaching storm of God's wrath, someone pipes up with the news report of Pilate, the Roman governor, murdering Jewish pilgrims while they were worshiping God. Those pilgrims, they must be what you're talking about, Jesus. The storm broke on them. They must have been really bad. They're getting what you're talking about. They're getting the judgment of God. They've been destroyed. And notice Jesus' response in verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus says, look, you are dangerously missing the point. It is to your doom that you are letting yourself off the hook. Do not think that you're safe. Do not let yourself think that the tragedy of the Galileans was the judgment I'm talking about. It was not. You are off. You're not off the hook. The storm has not broken. You have no idea. But you're right about one thing. The way they perished is the way you will perish if you do not repent. And then in verse 4, Jesus reinforces his point by adding a second example. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You will not only die like those who died by the sword, you will also die by buildings falling on you and crushing you. You will die that way too. Notice what both three and five have in common. In verse three, Jesus says, In the same way you will perish. He says that's the only thing you're right about. And in verse 5. Talking about the tower that fell. He says the only thing that's analogous here. Is the manner of death. You will die by being crushed. By rubble too. Then Jesus tells the parable. Which is a story with a punchline that matters for you. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it. And he found none said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered, sir, let it alone just one more year. Let me dig around and add some manure. Then if it should bear fruit, good. But if not, cut it down. Jesus was getting as blatantly obvious as he could get. 
The fig tree was Israel's favorite symbol of herself. Israel constantly referred to herself as the fig tree. Jesus was saying, time is running out. For three years I've been here. For three years I've been looking to Israel for the fruit of changing its ways. Time is almost up. Now we know from history that Israel did it with him. And in A.D. 70, just a few years later, the storm of God's wrath broke on Israel. And all of his terrible words came true. And you know how Israelites died? By Roman swords and by buildings falling on them when Rome raised Jerusalem to the ground. Word for word, these prophecies came true. He was begging Israel. Avert the storm of God's wrath. And Israel did it. Now, why is this important for us to hear today? It's important because it reveals our problem. We're just like Israel. And just like Israel, our real problem is that we are out of joint with God. And as a result, we will face the storm of God's wrath. Just like Israel, the symptoms of our problem are evident. We are filled with fears and insecurity and jealousy. We do things that we don't want to do. I mean, honestly, If we were to ask for a show of hands right now, how many of you, when you were kneeling and confessing your sins, you were confessing things you had done this week that you did not want to do, but you did them anyway. And we don't do things that we want to do. We love some things more than we should, and we love other things less than we should. We're divided from ourselves. The unconscious part of us steers the ship of our life in awful directions. We don't fully know who we are. We live years of our lives with false identities. Identities we're not even aware of. Not only are we each alienated from our own selves, we are alienated from one another. And it comes at an incredible price. We wound others. And we experience deep hurts in our own lives. There's not a person in this room who has not ravaged someone else with your words or your thoughts, with your imaginations or with your actions. All of us have played psychological terror Through our own manipulation of others. We blame. We project. We embarrass people. We manipulate. Our community is filled with hurt and revenge. With wounded people who are wounding others. 
And what about our own physical bodies? The alienation is everywhere. Do you have any idea how many people are home this morning because they're sick? If we were to take a show of hands of how many of us have fallen to our own physical weaknesses over the last few weeks or months. Disease and sickness are rampant. Two weeks ago, I lost a very good friend to cancer. Life cut short. And right now, a very good friend of mine, is his life is on a thread. Because the lottery ticket of cancer picked him. And even if you can escape the lottery of cancer, age itself is going to break you down. Death is where it all ends. And it is always horrible. There is no dignity in death. It is a terrible thing. And beyond our own bodies, look at the brokenness in our physical world. The cruelty we inflict on animals is unfathomable. We think that we are a society that's not cruel to animals only because it's hidden. During the Victorian era, it was on the streets. But now, it's in the the agricultural business. Our society hides it. But we are no less culpable. The way we breed and kill animals to to meet the demands of our consumer society, factory farmed pigs, geese, ducks, treated as commodities, cut off their beaks, Cut off their tails, separate them from their mothers, artificially fatten them, break them. We participate in this violence to animals. What is the last word of Jonah's gospel? Is this not a city, Nineveh, filled with souls and animals whom I love? We participate in this structural evil by our own ignorance and silence. The unnecessarily strict sell-by dates. And our demand as a culture for cosmetically purpose, perfect food. You know what it reduced? It results in landfill filled with our waste. Poor communities around the world suffering from an increasingly severe climactic set of circumstances. Changing weather patterns caused by greenhouse gases that are emitted by the wealthy countries. Desertification, crop failure, major flooding. Thousands of farmers every year in India commit suicide. You know why? Because of the failure of the monsoon season and because of their chronic indebtedness to loan sharks that is a direct result of our incredible subsidies to farmers. We are culpable. We exploit and deplete animals and the soil. And what I'm saying is that our lives are filled with alienation on every level. We are alienated from ourselves. We are alienated from each other. We are alienated from nature. But here's the key point. This is the point of Luke 13. None of that is our problem. In the sense that none of that is our real problem. All of that are symptoms. My alienation from myself, the deep unconscious, my alienation from others, all the broken relationships, my alienation from nature, these are the symptoms. The root issue 
is that we are alienated from God. That was Jesus' point with Israel. Israel thought Rome was her problem. In Luke 13, when Jesus tells Israel to repent, he's not talking about some generic moral repentance. He's saying repent from trying to fix things by changing your relationship to Rome. You've got to decide that your real problem is your relationship with me. Israel thought Rome was her problem. Israel was committed to casting off Rome. But Rome was not Israel's problem. Israel was out of joint with God. God was Israel's problem. And all the other problems flowed out of that. Your problem is God. And all of the other problems in your life flow out of that. It is because you and I, it is because we are alienated from God that we are alienated from ourselves. It is because we are alienated from God that we are broken with others. It is because we are alienated from the creator that we break the creation. Ever since that moment, when Adam and Eve bit the fruit, we have lived in a world filled with suffering and disease and poverty and racism and natural disasters and war and aging and death. And all of it stems from the wrath and the curse of God on this world. This world is out of joint because we are out of joint with God. The root of our problem is not our relationship with God, with, ourse- with, with ourselves, with others, with nature. The root of our problem is our relationship with God. All of these things, these are the effects. Our brokenness with God is the cause. So the first and the primary focus of God's agenda with the world is to heal the world by healing us. By putting right our relationship with God. Our problem is that we've sinned. And our sin has a penalty. It is the storm of God's wrath. And that penalty does not go away by taking a nap. The penalty does not go away by immersing ourselves in work. The penalty does not go away by fixing ourselves or working on our relationships with others or working on our relationship with nature. The penalty is a real penalty. There is a storm of God's wrath that is gathering against us. The truth Jesus spoke to Israel in Luke 13 is a truth that we must face. We are out of joint with God and all the problems in the world today are because of that. Thankfully, there's hope. Not only did Jesus confront Israel in Luke 13 with a real problem, he also confronted Israel with the only solution. And he does the same for us today. In Luke 13, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And all the strands of evil throughout human history were rushing together toward him. You get glimpses of it in the shrieks of the demons and the fighting of the religious leaders. 
in the, in the pain that people feel when they encounter Jesus. All of the powers of evil were gathering their forces together. And when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, you know what he did? He stepped in front of that tidal wave of death and destruction, and he let it do its worst to him. Why? So that it would be exhausted. So that its main force would be spent. Jesus stood in for us in Jerusalem. He was our behalf. He substituted himself. He faced the wrath of God in place of us. He took on himself all the darkness and all the death and destruction and evil that was unleashed in this world. He took the full force of evil on himself. And he killed him. But three days later. He led the way through the dark waters. And like Moses leading the way through the Red Sea. Jesus led the way through the waters of God's judgment and death itself. And in that moment. When Jesus emerged from death. When he rose from the dead. In that moment a great old door that was locked. And barred since our very first disobedience. It swings open. And what's behind it? A renewed creation. Renewal in our relationship with others and with ourselves and with nature. And that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has it. The crucified and risen Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Lord of the whole world. And because of that, we can be reconciled to God. And out of this reconciliation to God, we can experience reconciliation to ourselves. Reconciliation to others. Reconciliation to nature. And the healing of ourselves. And the healing of our relationships and our role in creation. This healing is not only something that will indeed happen in the future. It is something we can begin to taste now. But notice. Inner healing. Reconciled relationships. A life of love and justice and environmental care. That is. Is not the gospel. That is what flows out of the gospel. But social justice. Psychological healing. Environmental care. In and of itself is not the gospel. The gospel is not a way of life. It is not something that we do. It is something that has been done. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to solve all of these problems. The gospel is is something that we respond to by repenting and believing. Throughout Luke 13, the only means of escape from the wrath of God's judgment is not something you do. It's to repent of what you have been doing. Over and over, repent or you too will perish. Not join some social action group. Not start to care about the environment. Not start to get inner healing. Repent. Because when you think about responding to the gospel in terms of what you do, you are confusing the symptoms for the real problem. Now, are the symptoms important? Yes. 
Yes. Jesus died to heal all of those symptoms. He died to heal our inner lives. He died to heal our relationships. He died to heal us in nature. He died for all of that to take effect. But we don't get the, the victory of Jesus. We don't get salvation by doing those things. We get to participate in doing those things by repenting. We acknowledge that we are out of joint with God. And that we do the only thing that fixes us. We put our trust. In the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus as the solution. And we put our trust in the resurrection as the victory gained over the wrath of God. This is the only way to fix our problem. The gospel is news to be believed or rejected. Reject it at your peril. The gospel is news. It is not ethical action. It is not environmental action. It is not kind action. The gospel is news. It is not the life of love. The gospel is news. The gospel is good news that God is enthroned, the crucified and risen Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, and thus the healer of the world. The gospel is not a divine rehabilitation program for the world. The rehabilitation of the world is what the gospel does. It is not what the gospel is. And how does the gospel do this? It does this by healing us, the stewards of creation. Salvation is possible because of the gospel. The gospel is the news that God himself has paid for our sins and our wickedness and our evil and conquered the death we deserve. The gospel is news. The healing of nature is the effect of of the gospel. Because Jesus is the Lord of the whole world, we can be saved from the death and the guilt that our sins pile upon us. Because Jesus has conquered sin and evil, we can be saved from the wrath of God that is coming toward us because of our guilt. Because Jesus has defeated death, the whole cosmos will be healed. It is so critically important to emphasize this distinction between what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Otherwise, to our doom, we will be like Israel. And we will mistake the symptom for the problem. And we will think the gospel is something we do instead of something we receive by repentance. One more time. The gospel... Is the good news that God is enthroned, the crucified and risen Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Lord, the King, the healer of the whole world. And in doing this, Jesus suffered on our behalf. And when we respond to this good news by believing it and trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf, something incredible happens. We have a change in status. 
We are no longer accounted as guilty. We are accounted as righteous. Our sins and God's wide and deep mercy are forgiven. Repent. Believe. And that's what we get. We receive the Holy Spirit and we are placed in Christ. And out of this change, we will be led to care for the poor and for nature and for animals and for one another. And we will get to be a part of the renewed creation. And we will discover welling up within us a river of life that empowers us to plant a stake in the ground for justice and righteousness and healing and renewal. Luke 13 shows us that God's love and God's patience are not unconditional. God does not have unconditional love. God's patience is not unconditional. Contrary to much of what Western society and even Western Christianity tells us today, God is just and God is holy and he will not tolerate sin. So while God's love and God's patience does create the space for repentance, they do not create the space for endless sustained rebellion. Jerusalem was destroyed. Luke 13 shows that God's love and God's justice are not incompatible. And there is a terrible lie that has entered the church that causes us to totally miss Scripture by saying that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of some soft, fuzzy, unconditional love. And to say that, you must not be reading Luke 13 or following history. In the Bible, God's judgment is the form that his mercy takes when faced with a world out of joint. And God's mercy is the form that his judgment takes when faced with people who repent. Are you reconciled to God? Be reconciled to God. Don't be like Israel. Don't look at others who are worse than you. Don't put the data together to say, oh, look what they got. They got what they deserve. As you listen to Jesus today, I wish we had not stopped our reading in the psalm where we stopped it. Just a little later, it says, please do not be like Israel in the day when they heard God's voice and hardened their heart. God's patience is not a sign of your innocence. See, that's the problem. What about those Galileans? They got it. We didn't get it. Our innocence must be proved. They thought that because they were not experiencing tragedy, they must be safe. If there is ever a warning to us in America, this is surely it. 
were too eager to regard others as more deserving of God's judgment than themselves. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In Jesus, in, in Luke 13, Jesus is insisting that the unrepentant have escaped judgment, not because of their goodness, but because of God's patience, which was coming to an end. Your present safety is not because of your innocence. It's because of God's mercy. Unless you repent of your sins and believe in the work and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you will not escape the wrath of God. Be reconciled to God. Recognize that your sin is treason against your maker and all the brokenness in our world is the curse and the bondage that has resulted from sin. Repent of your alienation from God and believe in God. And if you have done that, then know, know with all of your guts that you, have been saved from the wrath of God. And that is the great work of God on your behalf. And know that everyone you know, if they do not repent, the storm of God's wrath will break on them. Repent or perish. Let's pray.